Well, it's great to see everyone out this morning. I hope everyone's had a good morning so far, and uh, I invite you to take your sermon outlines out, and if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles as well, we encourage that as well. Uh, This morning, I'm going to take a detour uh, from some of our previous discussion, and I want to talk about some letters to some churches uh, there in the book of Revelation. And obviously this morning we're going to be considering Ephesus out of Revelation 2, verse 1 through 7. To try to get some background and understanding uh, the premise and, and some of the historical nature of what's going on. You know, Ephesus is a, it's a cosmopolitan city and so it's very similar to our cities today, uh, where it's kind of a large area and then there's some smaller areas around it. Uh, but the thing is, is that it's really not so different than, than how we live and in, in what we live in, in that Ephesus was well known for the amount of, of sin that was in that area. They were known for widespread sin. They were known for sexual immorality. And we learn, we can see here, let's, let's read Revelation 2, 1 through 7, and then that might help us see what I'm trying to talk about. To the angel of the, to the, angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, and so that's talking about Jesus, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is which is in the paradise of God. And so we learn from verses 2 and 3 here that the church here, I mean, it's a good church. They haven't apostatized. They, it's not that they're not doing... It, it, well, yeah, it's not that they're not doing anything. It's not that they haven't figured it out. It's not that they're not doing anything right. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. So they stand up to to, to people who perpetrate wickedness and unrighteousness. Those who are false teachers, they come around and say, well, we're an apostle. We are teachers. We come to you in the name of the Lord. And they say, no, you're not. You're not an apostle. You are a false teacher. He He put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. These Christians are not engaged 
in worldliness. They're not practicing the things of the world. They're not participating in the sexual immorality that's extremely prevalent there in Ephesus. They're, they're not like the people that's around them in the city. They are, they are clearly set, they, they set themselves apart. They are different. They didn't reject the teachings of, of Christ. Doctrinally, they're, they're pretty sound. They don't bear with evil. They test the teachers to make sure that what's taught is, is, is in fact doctrine. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. They tried to make sure that they did all of these things. They even hated the teaching and the, and the works of the Nicolaitans. And we'll talk about that uh, here in just a moment. But even with all of this said, I still have this against you. I have this against you that you have left your first love. And so why is this so significant? If they've got doctrine right, if, they, if they've got everything figured out, if all of their practices are checking all of the boxes, what does it matter? But you see, this is Jesus talking to them and He's telling them, I have this against you. But then, you know, again, you go back to verse 2. He says, I know your deeds. And so, obviously, we need to look at this in respect to the church, the local church. What, you know, what kind of letter would we receive here? But not just as a church. What about us individually? What kind of letter would Jesus write to us as individuals, as Christians, as faithful members of the body of Christ? What kind of descriptors would we have in our letter? Because I want us to have an individual practical lesson for us to think about this morning, but also we also need to consider the work of the church here at MacArthur Drive. What kind of letter would we receive? Would it be one where we're checking all of the boxes right down the line, doing everything we're supposed to do, doctrinally we're sound, we don't tolerate false teachers, we don't put up with that, and, and, but then have we left our first love? Now I'm not saying, I'm not preaching this because I believe we have, I'm just telling you we need to look at ourselves. That's why we have these things written down for us to read and remind ourselves to remember things. So doctrinally, they've got everything right. They're not caving into sin. They're not practicing the sexual immoralities that many of the people of Ephesus were doing. And they even hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans just as Jesus says. You know, he says there in uh, verse... Uh, Six, He says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's a strong word, by the way. When you say that, you know, I think sometimes we need to obviously be careful with how we communicate, because if we're not being effective as communicators, we can really send the wrong message. But I don't think Jesus is sending the wrong message. He's making it abundantly clear. Not, now, not a lot is said about the Nicolaitans. We don't have, it, there's nothing in here that describes what, what was the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So really what we have is speculation. So if you will, uh, for just a moment of your time this morning, allow me to speculate and kind of give you what I believe was part of the Nicolaitans' problems. 
some early church writers in church history uh, point to Acts chapter 6 in response to Nicholas. And they're saying that the Nicolaitans were from Nicholas. That the, now, I'm not saying that Nicholas was this individual, but that somewhere down the line he had some followers. It's very similar to over in Galatians uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 when uh, <clears throat> the, the Galatian brethren, they had those who came down from James and they were of the false circumcision. That's not to say that James was wrong, but that they had their influence. They had interactions with him, so they were from his camp. So I, I'm persuaded to think that this might be a similar situation that Nicholas had a following. I'm not saying he checked them off and said, yeah, these are good guys. I'm not saying that. But unfortunately, they came from his side of town, if you will. And Nicholas is known as a proselyte. So what's a proselyte? That's someone who had converted to Judaism. That's what it says over in Acts chapter 6. A proselyte is someone who was not a Jew who becomes a Jew. They proselyte into Judaism. He started believing in the law of Moses and, and became converted. And then he becomes converted to Christianity. So think about it for just a moment. Maybe some of the people that he had interacted with probably did the same thing. So you have a lot of people who's they've made one conversion over to Judaism and now they're being quickly converted over to Christianity and all of a sudden you've got these pagans who've just kind of been tossed to and fro. And so I'm not saying that this is Nicholas himself, but what I'm saying is, is that this kind of influence, when you're just being tossed to and fro, can bring about some negative realities. And so part of those negative realities is I believe that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the idea that you can have one foot in both worlds or in all three worlds. So you can be partially pagan, you can be partially a Jew, and you can be Christian. You can do all these things, all these practices. You can be involved in the black magic that was transpiring and going on in Ephesus. You can go off and, and practice and do whatever. you. If you want to do animal sacrifice, if you want to rely yourself upon uh, circumcision, whatever you want to do, it's good. As long as you have a good conscience with God, you can dabble your feet in whatever you want. That's what I believe is probably what was transpiring and taking place. The idea of being strict, ta taking strict adherence to the gospel and relying upon the gospel, that there's not really a separation between those who believe in Christ and those who are of the world. So this doctrine that Jesus hated, to me, it it brings about this reality that it's a version of Christianity that has no power and there's, no, there's really no conviction. Because you're not really convicted to change. You're not convicted to, to change your life, to quit the sin. It's a worldly type of Christianity. And unfortunately, if you really think down, think deep about it, 
That's what we have practicing nowadays. The practice of the Nicolaitans. Those who just, oh, well, you can do what you want. You have your faith. I have my faith. If I want to dabble over here into some, some magic or whatever, I can do that. If I want to go off and, and do instrumental music, if I don't feel like partaking of the Lord's Supper, if I don't feel like singing a cappella, we really don't have to be so strict about it. And Jesus said that He hated this kind of thinking. But get back to verse 2. He says, I know your deeds. So as a church, He knows what they're going through. He recognizes what they're going through. And think about yourself as individuals, because again, I want us to get an individual application out of this. Jesus knows what we do as individuals. You mothers who's done, you know, 50,000 loads of laundry in a day. He knows your struggle. He knows your hardship. He knows that there's still that big giant pile of laundry in the laundry room. He knows the dishes that's stacked up in the sink. Man, He knows about our unpaid bills. He knows about our financial struggles and woes. He knows about the, the things that we struggle in, that we're not the spiritual leaders that we ought to be in our lives. Jesus knows all of these things. He knows this about His churches. He knows this about us as individuals. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Check. Have we turned the process of being a Christian into this mundane, boring checklist? Because unfortunately, that's what we seem to see here with the church at Ephesus. That they've turned their practice in Christianity in just this Checklist. We, we don't tolerate evil men. We've told, we've persevered. We've endured. But then he says, I have this against you. That you've left your first love. So what's the first and greatest commandment? Well, over in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, we're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And then, two verses later, verse 39, what's the second commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. So I want us to think about this checklist mentality. Now, you tell your spouse, I'm going to fulfill... All of my spousal duties, right? Speaking as yourself, you're going to tell your spouse, I'm going to fulfill all of my spousal duties and my responsibilities. I'm going to hold myself accountable, but I don't love you. How well do you think that's going to go over with your spouse? Yeah, I'm going to cook for you. I'm going to clean for you take care of house, I'm going to raise the children, help you raise the children, I'm going to go to work, 
bring in a paycheck. I'm going to take care of those physical things, but I don't love you. Think about that. Why don't people just do things just to do them? We want love to be the basis of everything that we do. So husbands, you're supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church. So love has to be part of what we do. But if love's not the basis of loving our wives, then how can we uphold our responsibility as being husbands? When you left father and mother, you, what'd you do? You went to your wife, you cling to her, and the two became one flesh. What good does it do if you don't acknowledge her? What good does it do if you don't uphold your end of the, the bargain? Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus that they've lost the love that they had at first. Yeah, you don't put up with false doctrine. You don't do those things, but you don't love me like you used to. The fire for the Lord had gone out. They were working for God. They were rejecting evil. That's great. But love was not the basis of their actions. And that eventually, when it starts off with God, it might not be as evident. Because maybe you're still doing well with your brethren. But it eventually seeps on over into the brotherhood where... Because you no longer love God, you no longer revere Him, you no longer have awe for Him, you no longer love your brethren. Think about Joseph for a moment. Over in Genesis chapter 39, we know the story about Joseph and Potiphar's wife, right? Remember what happened? She was trying to seduce him and get him to sleep with her. What was the basis of Job rejecting her advances? Was it because he was given a list of don't do this and don't do that? Or was his reason for rejecting her advances because he loved God? That's the point that we need to understand. In Genesis 39.9, There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife, how then could I do this great evil and sin against who? Potter? No. And sin against God. Joseph responded that he could do no such thing against God. See, the church at Ephesus, apparently they've gotten to this point in their lives where they're not doing the things because of God. They're doing it because they're just checking the boxes. And there's a difference. That's why we see Joseph respond the way he did. I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. So remember from where you have fallen. So 
Jesus is telling these brethren, you need to remember the zeal that you once had. You you need to remember the love that you had for God at the beginning of your conversion. When you converted and became a Christian, when you became a disciple of Christ, think about the relationship that you used to have with God and consider how far you've fallen. Husbands and wives, we we see that in our relationships. Typically, when you're dating and you're courting one another, there's almost that infatuation that you have with one another. And then you get married, and maybe for a good two to three, maybe four years, that infatuation is still there. That fire still burns, but then after a while, you have to really dig down deep and figure out why it is you love the person that you love. That goes back to communication. What are our love languages, if you will? It could be a whole host of things. Whether it's touch, whether it's acts, whether it's listening, communicating, whatever it is. But it takes work, it takes effort to build. But we need to go back and remember why it is that we love the person that we love. We need to go back and remember why we love God. What's happened? Why did we lose the love that we previously had? What's going on in our lives that's brought us to this portion of our relationship with God? And then our ritual to-do list. I think sometimes what we've done is we've allowed outside influences to come in and to draw us away. No one can serve two masters. No one. How often have you gone out into a restaurant, you've gone out to eat, and you see a family of four, a family of six, they're sitting around the table and not a one of them's talking to each other. They've all got these out, their phones, And they're texting. Not even communicating nothing. I promise you, that family's in trouble. It's there. It's right there in front of them. They can't see it. They don't recognize it. But the problem's there. See, when we allow the outside influence, and I'm not saying that technology's the only thing. I'm just using that to get you to think for just a moment. When we allow technology to infiltrate our relationships and then husbands and wives, whether it doesn't matter who, the husband's always on his phone at night talking with other people instead of spending time with his wife and talking with her. You don't think that doesn't have an effect on your relationship with your spouse? It absolutely does. So you think about that in our relationship with God. What is it that keeps drawing us away from God? Relationship with other people, our jobs, our interests, our hobbies. If God's not even within our own interests, how can we say that we love Him? But we've allowed whatever it is to come into our lives and we become, we get to a point where we become where we are serving other gods rather than loving our one true God. 
Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 5. Look at your outline. Jeremiah chapter 5, start at verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it to Judah, or proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear, do you not fear me? declares the Lord. Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree so that it cannot cross over. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot come cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest, your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have withheld good from you. You see, the problem is is that we don't see God in our lives. Do you not fear me? Do you not tremble in my presence? The Ephesian brethren stopped seeing God in their lives. Just as the tribe of Judah, whom they are trying, Jeremiah is trying to warn them, you need to start seeing God in your life. You need to start fearing Him. You need to start respecting Him. You need to start obeying Him. Because if you don't, the pain is coming. And if we don't start seeing God in our own lives, and we don't start respecting Him, and revering Him, and placing Him in the place of awe in our lives, don't worry, the pain will come. In our, and it may not happen here physically while we're here on this earth. We may live comfortably for the rest of our lives, but we will answer for it in eternity. They do not say in their heart, let us fear the Lord our God. The church at Ephesus lost their fear of God. They took the grace of God God for granted. And they did not understand their condition that they were in. Because they were stubborn and rebellious. When we fail to love God, when they fail to love God, they rebelled against God. Even though they did all the other things right, He has this against them. Look at what He says. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. He's taking their candlestick. I don't know about you, but if you're walking in the dark and all you have is a candle and it comes and it's snatched away from you, guess what you don't have anymore? You don't have any light. You don't have God on your side. Now you're in total, utter 
darkness, away from the presence of God. You're away from the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. When he removes the candlestick from Ephesus, they will be away from the presence of God. They will not be in the paradise of God any longer. And the same can be true for us in our own lives. We need to look out of our windows. We need to look away from our phones. And we need to see God in our creation. We need to see God in our lives. We have also exchanged the glory of God for technological toys and hobbies. We need to remember from where we have fallen. We need to repent and return. Just as he said there in Revelation 2, uh, also in Acts chapter 3, you see there on your outline, Acts chapter 3 verse 19, Therefore repent and return. Why? We're told. So that the sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of of the Lord. So if that is true, repent and return, therefore means presence of God. If you don't repent and return, what is that what that what must that also mean? That must also mean that you do not have the presence of God in your life. You are no longer have the light. You no longer have your candlestick. You are in darkness. If one's true, the other must also be true. So that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. And so back in verse 7 of Revelation 2, He who has has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I want us to consider paradise for just a moment. In Genesis chapter 2, we read about the tree of life there in the garden. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But once Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? God drove them out of the garden. So there are several implications. So with the introduction of sin came spiritual death, separation from God, but also came physical death. It's both. Because now they no longer have access to the tree of life. They no longer have that access to the presence of God in their lives any longer. And so I think we need to look at paradise in this sense that paradise is not so much a picture of a location, but it's a picture of us having fellowship with God. And if we're not in paradise, we are in torment. Away from the presence of God. Go over to, I know it's not on your outlines, go over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This will be the final...
passage for the morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at, start at verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So think about this. If you're not in Jesus, you're away from the presence of God. You have no access to the tree of life. But, if you have ears, you hear the gospel message, you believe it. And you are willing to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. You believe in His resurrection. You're willing to repent and return. And be buried with Him in baptism. To be buried into the baptism of Christ. The the baptism into His death. To have your sins washed away. You can be in the paradise with God. For all eternity. But if you're not, you're away from the presence of God. You're in darkness. You are in torment. Eternal conscience suffering. It's not worth it. Maybe you've already done that. Maybe you've already obeyed the gospel. But you recognize that there's sin in your life. Maybe you've left your first love. You're checking off all the boxes. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. I'm not going to say it's okay, but I am going to say it's okay. It's okay because right here, right now, you have that opportunity to rectify it. You have that opportunity to make the change, to confess your sin before God, ask for prayers of the congregation, and we'll pray for you and we'll pray with you. So this morning, if you are subject to our public invitation, we invite you to come forward as together we stand and sing the invitation song.